Uh, welcome to Ironworks Church, where we talk about important things, significant things. And I want to talk to you today about kind of an important idea in our culture. And I'm doing this because I know that some of you actually uh, work in biology or in the life sciences. Some of you are educators or part-time educators. Some of you are homeschool educators. And so you need to figure out what you believe about this particular issue, what, this, what uh, your position is on it. And I want to talk about it also because, uh, you know, I always have my eye out um, for young people and folks, uh, young people who might, might have the talent and the aspiration to become scientists. And I want to encourage them in that. Uh, because I, I think we do have some budding scientists uh, in our congregation. I want them to uh, feel um, really supported and to equipped as they are going into their particular field. So we should face this issue. You, you might have guessed uh, what the issue is. What I want to talk to you about <coughs> today is evolution. So let's talk about evolution. Um, when I say evolution, uh, people mean different things by it. What I'm talking about is the way I, I would speak about evolution is Darwinistic evolution. That is the scientific theory that natural selection operating on random genetic mutations causes the inheritance of traits in organisms that create new life forms through time. Right? So natural selection, that's just things in the environment operating on our in organisms or our population's DNA, random genetic mutations, causes traits to be inherited that, that create new life forms through time. Right? That's the scientific theory. And uh, many people find it helpful to distinguish between microevolution and macroevolution microevolution being these variations that happen in a population because the genetic variation is already there. And so you have these transfers and, and speciations. You have new species, which is kind of an ambiguous term, species, and even genera. And that would be microevolution in my mind. It's not something I I'm, I'm, uh, would take issue with. Um, whereas macroevolution is uh, creating new families of organisms and, of course, us. And so what, what I mean there is uh, not a cat becoming like a lion, but a cat becoming a dog is what we would say is macroevolution. And so people argue about this. Um, you might have noticed it's, it's an idea that's very much uh, in our culture, in the way that people think. And Christians, therefore, argue about this. Christians who argue for evolution, and Christians who argue against evolution. Uh, so what I'd like to do to just help us, and those of you for whom this issue is important, is recommend some reading. Um, on the one side, I would recommend a book by Michael Behe, right in nearby Lehigh University. He's a professor. And, oh, I guess it's about 20 years ago now he wrote a book that caused a lot of controversy. It was called Darwin's Black Box, in which uh, Michael Behe laid out his case uh, against evolution. And that caused a stir, and then he wrote another book. And this would be his third book, his most recent book. It's called 
Darwin Devolves. Darwin Devolves came out in 2019 by Michael Behe. And I, I would highly recommend this book. I love it because uh, in reading it, he's not only making an argument uh, in regards to evolution, he's also, when he writes, you start to feel the awe of what God has made. You start to feel, you get to feel the glory of creation, especially in the first few chapters. So it's almost like a, another argument. It's an argument by awe, we could say. And you, he, he just has a way of expressing, he's a, mic, uh, he's a microbiologist, but um, he can write. <laughs> Amazing. So that's a, that's a great uh, book. On the other side, you have these folks at BioLogos. And I guess what uh, the best thing, or one of the best things you could uh, take up and read on the other side, this is Christians who are arguing for evolution, is this book called Adam and the Genome by Dennis Venema, Dennis R. Venema and Scott McKnight. And you have a scientist and a Bible theologian guy in the second half of the book. The first half of the book is about the science, and I really enjoyed that. The second half of the book, um, I did not uh, find helpful. And I don't find these guys at, at BioLogos helpful, it's my opinion, uh, for, for addressing this. But uh, the first part of the book, I really like Dennis Venema's tone and the way that he talks about things uh, and the way he brings up the current kind of problems, uh, a, a challenges that uh, the, the results of the current scientific model, especially in population genetics, causes um, for the Bible. And that would be this problem that uh, according to population um, genomics or population genetics, uh, we were never less than a, a group of 10,000 individuals that we could not have actually descended, all, all people who are alive today could not have descended from a single pair. So that's the argument that he makes in his book. I think that, you know, he lays things out very clearly. I appreciate his tone uh, here. And I also, there's some interaction between these uh, two and although not his later book. And he also gives pointers in here to names we might know who disagree. So I just put those out for those of you who, for whom this really is an important issue, because I know you do, uh, you do teach on this, some of you, and work on this. Um, you can read these, figure it out for yourself, uh, what you believe. I will give you my take here this morning, actually as an introduction to uh, the passage we're going to be looking at. And if you have questions, uh, I want to invite you to go to the uh, group me sermon chat that we have. Although I can't believe anybody would have any questions uh, after this. Uh, I, I, I just can't imagine it. But if you did, uh, we, we would welcome them there. Uh, and so this is how I uh, would look at it. Um, I feel like in looking at, at uh, what, what we have learned um, from different scientific disciplines is that there's good evidence for relationship uh, between organisms and even relationship between us and other uh, life forms, this idea of common descent, that somehow we are related and it has to do with inheritance. I think there's good evidence for that. You know, there's, for every gene that you have, there is a corresponding copy 
uh, a similar gene in prokaryotes. I mean, way back in, in bacteria. So I think that we can, we can see good evidence for that. But that doesn't mean that there's good evidence, I think, for the Darwinism, the Darwinistic mechanism. I don't think that uh, Darwinism explains that. I don't think uh, that it actually um, kind of gives, uh, can, can do that. Um, and so I think that Behe makes a very good case for that myself. Um, so I think that's a problem. Um, I don't think that evolution can do it. I think it's there. So what we have here, friends, is a mystery, I would say, of common descent. It's a mystery. Heredity, if, uh, if the science is, is telling us true, is a, is, a, is a very mysterious thing. How things get passed along. The passing of things to descendants. It's, I think it's a mystery. And I don't think science can, gives us the answer uh, to this. So that's my scientific assessment, you know. But on the, on the biblical side, or the theological side, I would say that the problem that the Bible has with evolution, as it's defined, as I've defined it, it's not in Genesis. Now, you may disagree with this, and that's fine. But this is how I read it. When I read the book of Genesis carefully, um, what I see is that God does not just snap his fingers and things come into being. I mean, he does at the beginning, right? He says, let there be light. But then, he, the way, as you read the chapter, what he does is different things that he does that, that, that sort of involve a process. God calls out to the earth, and the earth responds of itself. God speaks to the earth, and the earth brings forth of itself. And I've, I feel like the way that the Bible talks in that, when the Bible talks in that way, it, it, it introduces or it opens the door for there being a process in the way that things have come about, in the way that God has created. It introduces even a, a progress that could be made. In fact, if you read the first chapter of Genesis in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, you keep seeing this word again and again, automata, automata in the Greek, from which we get our English word automatic. Uh, of itself. So I, I feel like the Bible does make room for God creating via a process, allows for a process in creation. I also believe in, in my reading that it does allow the text for long time periods. And, you know, you have different uh, ministries that address that. Hugh Ross, uh, in his uh, work, in his ministry, Reasons to Believe, uh, makes the case for, for long time periods. And I think that the text allows for that. It's my feeling uh, on that. And I would say even the Bible allows for randomness. Now that might be a, a, a word that we react against, random, randomness. But if we properly define it, I think that the Bible uh, gives allowance for that. You know, theologically here, our standard is the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's what we take as our theological standard. And when the, the Westminster Confession talks about what God does in the world in, in working out his providence and creating, it says that God um, orders his will sometimes according to secondary causes. And, you know, everything that, that happens, God causes. Everything 
we believe that would occur. Every event is under God's direction and from God. But the confession says that God um, chooses at times to order his will according to secondary causes. And, they, and it gives three secondary causes that God uses, necessary, contingent, and free. And what the confession means with necessary secondary causes are those things that are according to the regular patterns of nature, things that we would call maybe like the laws of nature. So if we drop an apple, you know, it is God's will for that apple to fall, but he orders that will to fall out according to what we might call the law of gravity, right? That's as necessary. Contingent causes are decisions that are made by people or angels, fallen angels or non-fallen angels. That is, God orders his will. He, he causes things to happen that are his will by decisions that beings make that he has created. Second one. The third one, though, the third secondary cause is, is free, what the confession calls the free secondary cause. And that is what we would understand as chance. Okay? That God orders his will at times to fall out according to what we think of or would see as something that's random. Um, and the, the confession gets that from different places actually in the Bible that say God did this thing and it was random, like an arrow went between the, the plates and the armor by, ram, by chance, it says, and yet it was God's will. Old Testament, New Testament has that. So I think that what, what the Bible is doing there is saying, you know, you need to understand there's a cause even if you can't see it. And so random is, pop, is, is possible, you know, to talk about. Uh, in fact, I remember I was having a conversation one time with a, a world-famous scientist. Uh, I just had the opportunity to talk with him. And he is a real leader in his field. Uh, very well-known, very smart guy. He's a professor at Yale University. And we were having a conversation. I was trying to build a bridge with him. I was like, let's do some build, bridge building. Because he was an atheist, an evolutionary scientist. And I said to him, you know, you and I are not so far apart uh, you as an atheist and me as a Christian, we're not really that far apart because we can agree, can we not, that when we're talking about something that's random, such as random genetic mutations, um, what we're really saying, what we really have to be saying, is that we can't see the cause. But we can't, we don't really mean when we say random that there can be no cause to the event, right? Because we don't know. What we're really saying when we say random, used scientifically, is that we don't have the ability to see the cause in the model that we use. It's like the, our model is not powerful enough to see the cause, or, or we don't have the instruments to measure the cause. But we're not saying there isn't a cause. We can't say that. When I said random, he said back to me, oh, no, no, no. When we say random, we mean really random. Like, there is no cause. That's what we mean by random. There is no cause to it at all. And, and I said, yeah, but you can't mean that, right? Because we couldn't possibly say, if, if there's a random event, that there's no cause, unless we knew everything, right? And we don't know everything. So we can't possibly say that there's no cause, we just say we can't measure it. Our instruments aren't strong enough to measure it. And he said to me, oh, no, no, no. We mean random. When we say random, we mean there's no cause at all. And I said to him, 
this is a great salad that we're having, right? We were eating a meal together. But I I said, okay, okay, no bridge building happening here (laughs) at this time, you know? Uh, This is not going to go anywhere because he, he couldn't even admit something that, you know, if you just think about it for a few moments, it's pretty obvious, pretty indefensible to say, we know there's no cause, you know? He couldn't even go there because of his commitment. He was so committed to his atheism. He couldn't say that. Uh, it meant something that was, I, I think, pretty obvious, um, pretty obviously true. But uh, that's what I'm saying. If we define things properly as Christians, I don't think the problem is really there, um, even in saying God could use random events. The real problem, friends, is not in Genesis, the problem between Bible and evolution. It's not in Genesis, but rather it's in Romans. Please stand with me as we read from Romans chapter 5. Josh. Romans 5, 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many die through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord, isn't it? Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Okay. Very good. Thank you, Josh. All right, what a passage, okay. Yeah, so I I think we can get the main point of this passage, uh, which is what uh, causes the problem with the current uh, scientific paradigm. Um, It's pretty clear here that Adam was one individual man, right? Verse 15, one man's trespass. Verse 16, that one man's sin. Verse 17, one man, one man, one man. Verse 18, one trespass, one righteous act. Verse 19, one man. Uh, This is the way that Paul understands Adam, that he was this individual from whom we all came, from whom we all inherited uh, what we have. And that's, uh, that's a difficulty. That's the way the Bible talks about Adam in other places as well. Hosea 6 talks about Adam as an individual, Isaiah 43, definitely. Um, And so 
it, it contradicts this idea that Adam could be some kind of literary figure or a stand-in for Israel, which is kind of the argument that they try to make uh, in that book, which I didn't, I didn't think was uh, helpful. I don't think they can do it uh, that way. It really can't be. And so you see, that's the problem that uh, confronts us then with population genetics is this idea that we're, we could never have come from a, anything less than a, a, because of the genetic variants that we have in our currently in our DNA. We couldn't have come from uh, a population less than 10,000. Uh, and as I said, you can read this and, and decide for yourself, but it does create a problem uh, for us. And you know what? That, that's okay with me. You know, I'm not really uh, traumatized by that. I'm not bothered by that. When, there, when I see that there's a tension between a current discipline and the Bible, you know why? Because the Bible has been here before. <laughs> uh, there, there have often been tensions with what the current scientific results are and what the Bible says. And, and just, just give it some time. Actually, the Bible comes out okay <laughs> uh, again and again here. So it doesn't worry me. But, but there are times, you know, when we might have to say, I don't know. Um, and our current state of knowledge doesn't allow me to, to know. And that's okay at this time. Doesn't, it, it shouldn't destroy our, our, our faith in a book that has been proven true in so many ways and so many times uh, for our lives to, to bank our lives on it. But in this passage, very clear, one Adam, Jesus, Jesus Christ was one man, Adam was one man. Um, and so there's that. But this passage in itself, you notice, creates its own mystery, right? This passage, it's so dense with philosophical, theological concepts. There are so many concepts that come up just in passing as Paul goes through his argument, right? There's the doctrine of death here in just these few verses. There's the verse 13, verse 14, the function of the Old Testament Mosaic law. Another, you know, really big idea. And there's a number of these big ideas that are there. And this is also where, in these verses, where the great Augustine uh, gives us our doctrine of original sin. Not only this place, but this is where he starts. This is where our doctrine of original sin comes from. If you don't know that, the doctrine is that we are born already spiritually dead. When we come into this world, we don't come into a place of, a, a, you know, of having a tabula rasa or you know, a, a blank slate. We're not even neutral. When we start out, we are already depraved. We are already very much lost. And, and that spiritual death then results eventually in our physical death. And that's what our experience is. Um, and that comes from verse 12. If you look at that closely, um, death spread from what Adam did to all people, all men. And let me tell you, that verse is, is intensely debated, intensely debated. Um, because people say, how could that happen? What does that mean exactly? What does it mean to say it's spread to all men? Like, what What's going on? Is that, is that because there are certain nucleotides that got mutated in Adam and that gets passed on to us uh, in, in certain nucleotides in our GN, DNA? Uh, is it that, is it mean that, you know, we were somehow 
in the loins of Adam, the way that the author of Hebrews speaks in Hebrews 6, like when he says, you know, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, and Levi, who is several generations later, was also tithing <laughs> to Melchizedek because he was, in, he was in Abraham's loins. Like, somehow are we in Adam's loins uh, when he sins? Is that the way it works? Um, and I got to say, friends, it's another mystery of common descent, <laughs> really, is, is what we have here. It's difficult to understand. This is the Christian version of the mystery of common descent. How can this be, this one man's act, so long ago, right, from the mists of history, on the other side of the world? What kind of quantum entanglement is going on here so that what he does, I, I feel the guilt for, I experience the fallen nature for? What kind of voodoo doll is this? I mean, is it even fair, right? One man eats a fruit, and I'm tortured. One man disobeys, and my life, my whole life is ruined from the very beginning so that I'm dead on arrival. What is that? What do I have to do with that fruit? So if you've never really struggled with that, I would encourage you to struggle with it. <laughs> it is a strange quantum entanglement. It is, a, again, the mystery of inheritance. Again, we come to inheritance. We come to descending. It's always a mystery, I think. And we see this in what Paul is saying. Maybe you might think, well, then I'm not going to believe it. I can't understand it. But I'll tell you, I'd encourage you to pay attention to your life because that's how I learned it. That's how I learned this was true. You know how I learned this? When I was growing up in Holiday Hills, which is um, you know, a suburb outside of Wilmington, Delaware, there I was in Holiday Hills. One of my earliest memories, and I remember this, I will never forget it, is one of the earliest things I can possibly call, call back to mind. If you think about those things, those experiences that you can go back and like the earliest memories you have. I was very small, but I remember this memory. This is one of my earliest memories. I'll never forget it. I was able to go outside and there in Holiday Hills, I had a friend, his name was Dougie. And Dougie had a house on a hillside and uh, there was a cement pathway that led up to Dougie's front door. And across the front of Dougie's lawn, there was this white picket fence and so there was a gate at the, at the, at the walkway. And there was, there was this rule. I didn't understand the rule, but it was a definite rule. You did not go through that gate. And I don't know why the rule was there. I, it was beyond my purview, beyond my pay grade to understand that rule. But I knew it, and the whole neighborhood knew it. And it was just this fence that went across the front of the yard. It didn't go around the house. You could walk around it. But there was this definite edict. You did not go through that gate. No one was allowed to open that gate and go up there through that way to Dougie's front door. But I'll tell you something. One day, and I went outside to see if Dougie was home under a purple sky, I remember, and a gathering storm. I wanted to go through that gate. And I knew that I wasn't supposed to go through that gate. But I got up there, and the whole neighborhood seemed to be empty. 
all silent. There's nothing going on. And there I was in front of that gate. And I went through the gate. And you know, the moment of transgression for me was pretty unceremonious. I imagine it was a lot like a man's teeth going into a bite of fruit. I was through the gate and up at the door in a moment. Rang the doorbell and nobody was home. You know, nobody had seen what I had done. But something had changed in me, friends, and I knew it. And the only way I could react to what had just happened was to run. And I started tearing around the neighborhood. I couldn't stop running. I just had to run. I ended up running in the end up into my house, up to my room, threw myself on the bed, and started to weep. And my mother kind of noticed this. She followed me into my bedroom, and she asked me what was wrong. Something had been revealed in my nature in that moment. And then something else was revealed as well when she asked me what was wrong. I lied. I lied to her and I said, my tummy hurt. Or maybe that wasn't much of a lie because I I felt ill to my core. The law came and I died. And from that time, so followed, friends, in my life, years and years of betrayal, of disregard of people, of deceit, of faithless fear, of gluttony, of lust, of moral weakness, of pride that characterized my life. And the longer the time went on, the less traumatic these things became, but the more I developed and exhibited that nature. And the better I became at covering it up. I learned how to deny it. I learned how to disguise it. I learned how to dig deep and bury it. But that was my nature from the beginning. I was in Adam, and verse 14, even though my sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. I shared his nature. So I've come to accept this doctrine that Paul is preaching to us of original sin. And I've found that I need to. We need, friends, that one manness that Paul is insisting on here to be true. Because we need another common descent for us to be saved. God intercepted my life through one man, Jesus Christ. And yet another big idea in this passage, yet another enormous idea, substitutionary atonement here in these verses. He substituted for me. And how he did that and how that affects me is just as mysterious, maybe more mysterious, maybe more unbelievable than original sin why we should always speak of these two together. Always speak of original sin and substitutionary atonement together. Because just as as the sinking of the teeth into one piece of fruit, in that I died. So the piercing of the wrist of one nail in another man 
through that made me alive. But how could that be? How could that happen? It was so long ago in the mists of history. It was on the other side of the world. What kind of strange quantum entanglement is this? It'd be like someone in Singapore centuries ago walking into a bank and emptying his life savings. And somehow today, my student debt is forgiven. Like, does that make sense? How does that happen? Again, it's the mystery of inheritance. And yet this is how the Bible says the world is. How is that fair? What kind of voodoo doll is being employed here? One man is tortured and my guilt evaporates. One man rises from the dead and I'm renewed inside. I'm given new life. That's the strangeness of what the Bible tells us is true. And as mysterious as it is, friends, this is how I was saved, by the obedience of one man from whom we all have, those who confess him, common descent. It's the best way to put it. Jesus Christ says, here I am and the children that God has given me. That is, those whom God has called, those who are born of him and mysteriously descended from Christ. That's what the all means there in verse 18 and verse 19. Not talking about a universalism here, but as Adam was representative of all who came from him, so Christ was representative now of all who come from him, born again through faith. That's the word. So I encourage you to embrace this. Whatever you believe about evolution, this common descent is important for your life. And not only so, the reason it's so important is because the gift, Paul says, is so dissimilar to our first common descent from Adam. Right? In verse 15, this phrase is translated free gift. I love that phrase because in the original uh, Greek, it's really literally the gift in the gift. It says free gift there. The gift in the gift is much better. Utterly dissimilar from what we received from Adam, our covenant head. There's something more in this mystery of our inheritance from Jesus Christ. Because Christ has not only restored what Adam lost, he's gone far beyond that. That's what verse 16 is talking about, the unspeakable generosity of divine grace. We're not just delivered from poverty, but we're made to be kings. In this inheritance, we're not just restored to be good citizens, but we're raised to royalty, to reign with him, it says. Now, friends, we, didn't involve, we did not evolve. But divine selection, we could say, using spiritual mutation, has created a new life form across time. 